Well, this Advent season, we're going to be looking at Christmas through Matthew's eyes. Now, each of the four Gospels gives us something distinctive about Christ and what the meaning of the life of Jesus is and what he's done. And we need all four. They're complementary. They're like surround sound or uh, a quadraphonic sound uh, in, a, in a theater. And there are only, though, two of the Gospels that narrate the birth of Jesus. And this is the way Matthew introduces us to Jesus. It gives us a window on the meaning of Jesus' birth and his life and the reason for our celebration at this time of year. So I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, and if you would stand. Matthew begins the gospel this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amnimadab, and Amnimadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abiah, and Abiah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Gracious Father, be pleased to illuminate this text by the presence of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. For we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Matthew deliberately begins his gospel with a genealogy, with a family tree. Now, one of the very first things a new preacher is taught 
is that you have three to five minutes to convince your audience that you're going to say something that they should pay attention to, something actually worthwhile. And I know that many of you are skeptical that that's going to happen now, this morning. But just before you pull out your cell phone and begin to play a game, or perhaps uh, to check social media, if you'll just hang in here with me for a few minutes, I'll show you wondrous things from this otherwise unpromising looking passage. Now, many people find their family history fascinating. Uh, the popularity of Ancestry.com attests uh, to that. And I know, in fact, some of you are very interested in your family uh, histories. Matthew's first audience would have found this family history impressive and compelling. But of course, you're thinking, this is not my family history. You know, I'm a Smith. The Jones family history is rather dull. Makes for very dull uh, reading indeed. But this family tree is addressed as an invitation to you. It is an invitation for you uh, to join the family of Jesus. And Matthew here leaves clues about the very character of this family and why it is that you would want to be a part of it. Now, this family tree expresses the deep longings that everyone has. For the first century Jews, it showed their longing and expectation that the Old Testament's promises are being met in Jesus. The Jewish people longed for a Jewish king to rule them. It had been hundreds of years since they'd uh, had one. The current king, Herod, was an ambitious military adventurer who was appointed by Rome and despised by those he ruled over. And Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is, in fact, the king that we long for. He's the king that was promised long ago. You see, when God appointed David as king over Israel, he promised David that he would have an enduring throne, that one of his sons would always sit on the throne. And initially, David seemed to be everything that the people desired. But over time, his flaws and his uh, failures became obvious, and they became disappointed. People wanted a king like David only better, someone who was powerful enough to bring justice and peace, to fight their enemies, to break the power of evil and establish righteousness, who would protect the poor, the weak, the disenfranchised, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. He was to be a shepherd king. They longed for a caring and tender king who wasn't concerned about his own reputation or amassing power or wealth or wives. We all deeply long for such a person. It's a deep longing in every one. You can see that longing expressed in King Arthur, in our fairy tales, in the Lord of the Rings. 
But modern, sophisticated people like you tend to think, well, that's just a psychological projection. No mere human is that strong and that tender and that uh, wise. People always fail us. We never see strength and tenderness together. If they're strong, they're corrupt. If they're tender, they're weak. And even the best people die. But God promised he would give us such a king. And Matthew, by way of this family tree, is saying that Jesus is that king. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus has a legal claim to the throne of David. And of course, such a claim needs to be substantiated. It's a serious thing to uh, claim a throne. And he makes this point in several ways. Let me just point out some of the things he does here. David's name appears five times, more than even Jesus' name here. And David alone is called king, even though all the men mentioned in verses 7 to 11 were the kings of Judah. Only David gets the title king. The Babylonian exile is mentioned four times because it breaks the kingly line of David. The kingdom was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. But David's bloodline is not cut off. He still has sons beyond the exile. And yet not one of them ever sat as a king. And Matthew stresses Jesus' connection uh, to David. He begins that way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And so Matthew's drawing a straight line for us from Abraham to David to Jesus, a bloodline. But he makes the same point in a different way, and and this is more subtle, because Matthew puts together a selective family tree. Names have been intentionally left out, and you can verify this yourself if you open up to 1 Chronicles and compare it to Matthew. Don't do that right now. I'll just tell you what you want to look at. Verses 3 and 4 cover 400 years in four generations, leaving out three of the kings of Judah. And like any English schoolboy, every Jew knew the line of kings. They knew. They, were this, they didn't, weren't surprised by this. They, this wasn't fooling them. They recognized that Matthew was doing this on purpose. And the reason Matthew does it is, is in verse 17. He wants three sets of 14 generations. Now, some of you, and I know this is just how some of your minds work. Some of you think, well, Matthew is being deceptive. No, he's not. You see, the phrase father of in Hebrew means a descendant. It doesn't mean the immediate biological father. They just didn't use words like we do, and we need to respect that. Why the number 14? What's so important about 14? Well, if you were a first century Jew, it would be obvious to you. 
And of course, it's not. So let me let you know what's going on here. Jews used the letters of the alphabet to stand for numbers, kind of like the way we use Roman numerals. So the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, is used for the number one, and the second letter, Bet, is used for the number two. David's name in Hebrew is D-V-D. The vowels aren't counted. And D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and V is the sixth. Four plus six plus four. That's 14. Matthew is emphasizing with these 14 generations, David, David, David. This is Matthew's way of saying Jesus is the true David. Jesus is Israel's true king. Jesus is the last son of the Davidic line. He is David's greater son who reigns forever. And so Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the king we long for. In this way, Matthew, in introducing Jesus, is emphasizing that God is faithfully fulfilling his ancient promises. That will actually be a theme throughout Matthew's gospel. But admittedly, the fulfillment took a very long uh, time. There were a thousand years between David's coming and the birth of Jesus Christ. But God always keeps his word. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. As he has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And there's great comfort in this. While God doesn't act on our timetable, he will act. Jesus was slow in coming Slow for the people of Israel who lived under foreign domination for 500 years. And yet God's timing was perfect. Now, Advent, Christmas, is not something that happened just long ago. Of course it did that. But Advent is for all of us also coming afresh. It is in this season that we too wait for God. We long for God to come, to answer our prayers, to bring us out of painful circumstances, to bring strength, to heal wounds that we've received in relationships, to increase our joy, to supply our needs, to complete what he started in our lives. And you can be certain that God will accomplish all that he's promised uh, to do. Everyone who is a part of God's family, the family you're being invited into, has this kind of father. This is an invitation to you to join God's family. 
the promise is spoken this way in John's gospel. Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. If you understand this, if you understand the gospel and are ready to have Jesus as your king, then receive him. Welcome him. If your heart's soft this morning, if you sense the spirit tugging at you, don't resist. Say yes to God. Say yes to Jesus. But if you're not sure yet, then let me show you still more wonders that are in this passage. Jesus meets a deep need that everyone has. There's something strange and unexpected in this family history. It includes four women in the family tree. And actually, Jewish people in that time didn't do that. They didn't write their family trees with the names of women in them. But if they were, you would expect it to be the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who would appear. The matriarchs, the women whose faith is celebrated in the scripture, but they are left out. Instead, we have four women who each in their own way are misfits. They are actually not the kind of people who, well, ought to be in the line of a great king. Three of them are black sheep. They have past lives that are notorious in one way or another. Their stories are scandals. The most obvious one, if you know the Bible, is Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. She participated in the most famous royal scandal with David. She committed adultery with him. Granted, things weren't equal between them. He was a king, and she was, well... She was a citizen of Jerusalem. And so there was certainly a measure of coercion in that for her. That led to, in, in some level, she was implicated in a cover-up, which followed in the murder of her own husband, which colored the entire rest of David's reign. The fallout for that just continued and continued and continued. Then there's Tamar, a woman of great misfortune. Her first husband was evil and God struck him dead. Now, not having a child is a great tragedy. It is today, but it was an even greater tragedy in that time. And so the custom of the day was that the brother should give a child uh, to the widow. The second son was given to Tamar, but he refused to cooperate, knowing that the child would not be his. And so he frustrated the plan. And his wickedness brought the justice of God, and he too died. These were Judah's sons. And though Judah's last son should have been given to her, Judah refused. He gave excuses when he grows up. And she was left a widow without a child to support her. And so she hatched a plan that relied on Judah's bad character, posing as a prostitute. And she gave, 
she conceived and gave birth to twins, and one of them, Perez, is in the line of David. Then there's Rahab. She earned her living as a prostitute, assisted the spies, and was rewarded not only with her life, but she married into Israel, and not just into any family, but into the line of the king. And then there's Ruth, who was a woman of exceptional personal character. But she was a descendant of a nation whose origins resided in an act of incest. Now these women, in a strange way, prepare us for Mary, who will conceive Jesus by the miracle of the Holy Spirit. But she will be accused of impropriety her life will be viewed as an act of scandal. After all, she's an engaged woman who's discovered to be pregnant. Even uh, her fiancé's not too sure about taking her, but that's for another day. Matthew's setting us up to see that Jesus is a strange and unexpected Savior. Now, the New Testament lets us know that people were well aware that there was something strange about the birth of Jesus. One of the rumors that the Jews circulated was that the child was the product of Mary and a Roman soldier. There were many such rumors. And Matthew not only knew these rumors, but he includes these three women, all of whom there's something in their past to tell us something that he highlights in his gospel. Jesus is not ashamed of sinners. Jesus is not only the descendant of sinners, of scandal, but he came for sinners. He doesn't reject us for our past. Now, we all have pasts. We all have moral failings. We've all made bad choices. And this family tree might strike you as being a mix of good people and bad people, But the differences between these people are only relative. There are no morally good people. It's highlighted in another way. Four times the Babylonian exile is mentioned here. The emphasis on that highlights Israel's failure and God's grace that he doesn't let them go even when his people have shown such a stubborn disposition and resisted uh, his call to them to repent and to trust him and walk in his way, even though he gave so much to them, they failed to live a life of gratitude. And this is good news because it means that your past doesn't disqualify you for being in God's family. Jesus has, in fact, come to set us free from our past. Your past doesn't define you if you're in God's family. Your past doesn't have to be your future. And Christianity will never be relevant to you until you will grasp what's at its core until you're really willing to see how black your soul is, until you really are willing to see that evil is not something out there, but that it runs through the very center of who you are. And you who know Christ, 
you will never outgrow your need for this Savior. Your joy and your experience of Christ actually depends on your awareness of your past, of the blackness of your soul, of your honesty about your continuing need for a Savior. The more in touch you are with that, the more in touch with your failings, the more the possibility is for your joy to be increased. You mustn't, of course, stay there on your failings. You can't camp out there. You need to move quickly over to behold the amazing grace of a Savior who would embrace you, past and all. There's another amazing thing here. Matthew goes out of his way to show us that outsiders are welcomed by God. Here in this family tree, the barriers are being taken down between men and women, Jews and Gentiles, the privileged and the poor, insiders and outsiders. They're all being taken down. These women in the official genealogy are alongside of men. And three of these women are Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. And Ruth, a Moabite. And the next woman we meet at the end is Mary. She is poor. She's not a member of a great house. She's not from one of the prominent families. She, too, is an outsider born and raised in the backwaters of Israel. This has enormous implications because it means that Christianity is not some kind of exclusive club. God in Christ is opening wide his family to everyone from every nation. Christianity is not the property of uh, white Europeans and their descendants. No one has the right to claim that Jesus is exclusively theirs. You see, the Jews thought that. They thought they were most entitled to the Messiah, and they missed him completely. You see, the gospel's not ours. It's given to us for the sake of the world. Matthew ends his gospel announcing this same thing. He begins announcing this and he ends with it. The very last words are Jesus, are go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And as we celebrate this Christmas, we should remember, we're not to keep the gospel for ourselves. We should seek to be creative and find ways to share it uh, with others. So Jesus is the Savior who removes our past, uh, who embraces outsiders. But there's something else here. All of these women seem cursed. There's something tragic. In fact, all five of them uh, suffer. Three of them are widows. Tamar is a widow who's childless. Two of her husbands die. Ruth, she also loses her husband and her uh, two sons in the midst of a famine. And she is left 
utterly destitute. Then there's Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, whose husband is murdered and whose illegitimate first child dies in infancy. And while we don't know the backstory of Rahab, the prostitute, we do know that women were forced into prostitution. And we have to conclude something happened in her life among her family, that that's what she ended up doing. And Mary, too, suffered. She suffered character assassination. Even though she served God with utter purity and integrity, her character was maligned for her entire life. She lived her whole life with her reputation being ruined. But it got worse. It seemed that she was a cursed woman as her firstborn son was crucified publicly rejected. You see, suffering is at the very heart of redemption. It's written large here that redemption comes through suffering, and this is really unexpected. But this genealogy underscores this in another way. You see, David didn't usher in, his line didn't usher in a wonderful utopia for Israel. No, it ushers in the Babylonian exile because of its unfaithfulness to God. Its failure to live with God brought it under the curses of the covenant. And so while David represented in one way the high watermark of Israel's hopes, the Babylonian captivity represented the nadir of Israel's failures, the frustration of their hopes, at the end of the royal line. And so God's work bringing about redemption comes in a very strange and unexpected way. It comes in the way of suffering, of a king who is rejected and suffers and is crucified for us. This is not just the story of how redemption is accomplished. It is actually the paradigm for redemption. This is how God works redemption in the lives of every person It's not a a rocket launch, just straight up. Everything gets better and higher. No, it's, it's very wobbly. It has its ups and downs. And in this season, those of you who are aware of suffering in your life, and maybe acutely aware of it, this can be a very hard season to enter into. It's a a season where things are festive. In fact, the decorations around us are festive uh, this morning. The colors are bright. For many people, uh, this uh, reminds them of uh, ideal families, even if their family wasn't ideal. The ideal, the Norman Rockwell family is held up uh, to them, and often it's very painful because people recognize either my family now is not like that or it was never uh, like that. And here is something sweet. Jesus' family wasn't ideal either. That's what this genealogy tells us. And there's great reason to hope here because out of suffering comes redemption. And look at this. God's grace comes to each of these five women 
in ways they didn't expect. Not only did God come to the widows and provide marriage for them and meet their deepest physical needs, but he included them in his plan to bring the Savior into the world. And here's the thing. Jesus isn't the fulfillment of all the promises and therefore there's nothing left. That's the end of all the promises. No, as he fulfills all the promises, it is the beginning of God lavishing his grace. Jesus is the strange, wonderful king that we long for. The savior who who came to embrace sinners and outsiders, to those who were cursed, to people who have pass and who carry shame. He was rejected and made an outsider himself for us. He was cursed so that we might have a blessing, that we might be accepted. This table captures something of that. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, grant us hearts that are captured by what Matthew said to us today, that we would see Jesus in all his beauty and strength and tenderness. Be pleased to draw those who've hesitated to come to him today. And grant us a strong hope and confidence that you're at work in the midst of what's difficult, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the circumstances that we can't puzzle out. And may we be the bearers, Lord, of this good news for others. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Matthew has shown us something